morning. Okay. So <clears throat> we're talking now about when is a bracha inappropriate? There are times when one cannot make a bracha. Obviously, when you're eating something that Hashem does not want us to eat, it doesn't, it doesn't stand, doesn't make sense to be praising Hashem uh, and then eating something that he would have us, he would rather we not be eating. Um, so that's the, let's talk a little bit about what that, what, how, what that looks like. So a bracha is essentially, as we've mentioned, a praise of Hashem. So therefore, any bracha, which is offensive to Hashem by definition, it's by definition not a bracha. Such a thing is not a bracha. That's not that's not creating a flow. We talked about bracha as being a flow of spiritual energy between us and Hashem, increasing the flow of spiritual energy into the world. When I do something wrong, I'm not increasing spiritual energy at all. Accordingly, one who eats forbidden foods may not recite a bracha, regardless of whether the prohibition is biblical, rabbinic in origin. That's not going to make any difference. The reality is that it's going to that, that it's going to impact what he's doing. One who hears such a bracha should not answer amen. And therefore, non-kosher food, someone who's eating non-kosher foods, even those foods that are only uh, by rabbinic decree, for example, um, the food, oh, how are you, Mrs. Amber? The food cooked by a non-Jew, that's what we call bishul akum. Um, so so, or, so um, the halacha of bishul akum would be that one is not one can turn as long as one turns on the fire or does something to contribute to the cooking, it's fine. But the the rabbis instituted as a way to prevent too much socialization between Jews and non-Jews that we don't eat from things that they cook. Um, yeah, you know, it sounds a little exclusive. The point of it is, the point of it is, is to create a separation between between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Um, it's not a judgment on them. It's simply. The reality is that Akash Baruch Hu doesn't want us to intermarry with him, as it says explicitly in the Torah. So the, the rabbis understood that when you break bread together, you're creating a social bond, you're creating a, you're creating a connection, and it's, it's not a good thing. So therefore, they, they set up the certain things that prevent us from uh, intermingling with them on, on too, 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 too much, including not eating their cook, not eating food that they've cooked, not drinking wine that they've touched, um, and other and uh, other halachos like that, they allow us to, or force us to, to consider where we belong. If somebody is eating such food, even though it's only rabbinic, the, the prohibition is rabbinic in origin. Or let me throw out one there that's that you that you might find fascinating. Um, the Torah prohibits one to cook meat and milk together. So meat and milk cooked together is is. Uh, prohibited is is a Torah prohibition if it's cooked from animal meat. What about if I cook chicken with meat, uh, with milk, excuse me, with meat it would be fine, but if I cook chicken with milk, technically speaking that's not included in the prohibition. Your chicken and milk is not is not included in the Torah prohibition, but the rabbi, the rabbanon said, the rabbis taught us that the reality is people don't differentiate between chicken and milk, and therefore one may not eat, one may not eat uh, chicken together with milk, that's a drabanan. If you're eating chicken that was cooked in milk, or you're having a glass of milk together with your chicken, you would not make a bracha. You would not make a bracha on that because it's not something Hashem wants you to be doing. The, in, the even more interesting one, just to just to throw it out there, right, would be fish and milk. So fish and milk, fish and milk, um, it's interesting. The Shulchan Aruch writes that one should not eat fish and milk together, actually. The Shulchan Aruch is the code of Jewish law. The Ramah writes that it's a misprint. It's incorrect. It's a mistake. The, there is a pro. There is an issue with eating meat and fish together. 
it's a health issue. It's uh, it's considered the for some reason the Gemara considers it unhealthy. I believe that um, that that is agreed upon even today by scientists. They agree that uh, that actually um, milk and uh, excuse me, meat and fish is actually not so good for you. Um, you shouldn't eat them together. But meat, milk and fish is actually fine. The Ramah says Svardim. Uh, Svardim go with the psak of the Shulchan Aruch, despite the fact that the Ramah says it was a mistake. There's no makar, there's no source for it anywhere in the Talmud for a prohibition against eating uh, milk with fish. But Ashkenazim uh, will eat milk with fish and would encourage Svardim to eat milk with fish. So here's, here's, here's you have an interesting situation. You invite a Svardi to your house and you, and you feed him you feed him uh, a, a, a tuna casserole with cheese. You feed him a tuna casserole with cheese. So you might actually have to make a bracha for him because as far as he's concerned, he's not supposed to be, he shouldn't be eating that, um, assuming that he went ahead and ate it anyway. And as far as you're concerned, there's no problem eating it. So you are allowed to make a bracha. He would not be allowed to make a bracha. That's just a, that would just be an, an interesting situation that might arise. For those of you that are looking at the book, Again, we're on page 144, top of the page, number two. The second thing, the second type of thing that a person would not be able to make a bracha on would be stolen foods. One who steals food or even takes a takes food without the owner's permission or without being certain that the owner approves may not recite a bracha on that food. Um, again, it doesn't matter how small it is. You know, oftentimes it was like, ah, it's just a chip. I'm just taking a peanut. I'm just taking a this. I'm just taking a that. You're not allowed to take something that somebody doesn't do, that doesn't allow you to do that. Now, it's interesting to me. I wonder. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ponder out loud. Um, there's a halacha like this. The halacha is that if something's not worth a shavah pruta, one can assume when dealing with a Jewish person, one can assume that somebody was mochel that they that they forgave you. That less than a pruta, you know, Jews are not don't care that much about little something so little as as that's that's not even worth a pruta. It's not even worth like a, a, a five cents that somebody would automatically forgive that. So to take one chip or to take one uh, to take one raisin or or a peanut or a, a small handful of peanuts, perhaps that may not fall under the category of stealing because he's automatically mochalet. And even if you took that without permission, you would be allowed to make a bracha. If you took it from a non-Jew though, there, there's no halacha of mechila. There's no, there is no such automatic assumption that they forgive you and you would not be allowed to eat it. So um, not, this is not something that I would condone or, or encourage, but I do see, unfortunately, people doing this. I, I happen to think it's wrong, but let's say you went to the store and you want to see if the grapes are fresh. So I see people doing this all the time. I'm in stop and shop and I see people, they take a grape and they pop it in their mouth. They try it. They testing out the vegetable, testing out the grapes to see if they're fresh. Would you make a bracha on and taking that grape? So if you knew there was a Jewish owned store, I would say the grapes probably worth less than a nickel. I'm guessing probably, I assume, let's assume the grapes are a dollar, what, a dollar fifty a pound, right? So a pound of grapes, so you, you'd have to, for it to be worth a nickel, you'd have to be probably more than one grape. You probably would make a bracha. But if it's a non-Jewish store, you couldn't make a bracha on that. You try to test that, taste that grape, you wouldn't be making a bracha. The Gemara refers to this, this is not considered making a blessing. This is not considered a blessing. It's something that is disgusting. You're creating, you're, you're doing the opposite. We talked about the concept of, 
creating a spiritual flow of energy into the world, like a faucet that we open up, that we control this flow of spiritual energy. When we make a bracha, we're opening up that faucet. But when I'm, when I'm stealing, when I'm doing something wrong, I'm closing that faucet. I'm narrowing down the spiritual energy that's entering into the world. It's not appropriate to be making a bracha on this. Similarly, when it took a vowel, a vow not to eat a specific food, or somebody eats a food that's dangerous to his health, um, milk and fish, right? Uh, recites no bracha on that food. Um, they do not make a bracha on that food. Uh, I'm sorry, not milk and fish, excuse me, fish and meat, fish and meat. These aphors stated apply equally to a bracha of rabbinic origin, a bracha of biblical origin, and consequently, even one who eats his fill of non-kosher bread, non-kosher bread, I'll give you an example of non-kosher bread, um, they make in the stores, uh, they make a bagel that's called... Um, uh, it's a flavor. It's called. Uh, it's escaping my mind now. It's made with cheese, some sort of cheese, um, or they milk make a make a bread that is an Irish soda bread that is milchit that is dairy, right? So these types of breads, the halacha is <clears throat> very interesting. The halacha is when it comes to bread, since bread is considered a universal food, you are not allowed to put milk in it for fear that if somebody came to the table. And to, the, to your table, they might eat that bread with meat without being aware of it, unless you make the bread in a specific shape, or you uh, or, or you make some other sort of marking on that bread that clearly designates it as milchik bread. You can't have milchik, or for this by the same token, bread baked in a fleshik oven is not a good idea. You're not really not allowed to do that now. A fleshig oven, let me, let me qualify that before I get a lot of phone calls tomorrow when, when people are, when the ladies are making challah for Shabbos. Oh, what should I do? I made my challah together. The, it has to be that there's liquid cooking in the oven at the fleshik liquid, literally liquid, cooking in the oven at the same time as your bread to make your bread fleshik. If your bread was cooked in an oven where some where fleshix was cooked uncovered that was dry. I don't know, you're making schnitzel and it was dry schnitzel and you you cooked schnitzel in the oven and then you cooked bread in it immediately afterwards, that would not be a problem. But if you had um, some sort of a meat lasagna and, and there's bubbling fat in the bubbling stuff, I'm not going to, right? So there's bubbling meat juice over there and you have your flesh, your bread in the oven at the same time. So then that would taka make your bread fleshic and, and would, that, would be a, that would be much more problematic. Now, here's a very interesting situation. What happens if a person is facing a life-threatening situation? As you know, that for, 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 the, for matters of life and death, the halacha is that all mitzvahs are suspended, including the mitzvahs of Basavachalov and Trefus and all the rest of that. So let's say, let's say somebody was told they has to eat something that's not kosher, um, in a situation where, in a situation where it's pikuach nefesh, I don't know. Let's say the insurer, insurer happens to be a kosher product, but let's say the insurer con- contained a non-kosher ingredient, uh, and they told they told somebody, you know, an elderly person, they told him he needs the extra nutrients. It's, it's literally a, a situation of, of of life and death, which can happen a lot. Sometimes they need those extra, and there's only way, the only thing you can get is a non-kosher. Is a non-kosher type of thing. What would be the what would be the what would be the halacha in that situation? There, the Torah allows me to eat the non-kosher food, but I'm eating non-kosher food. So I, I here I have a real here I have a real dilemma. Here I have 
a, a, a complete paradox. On the one hand, it's not kosher. Hashem doesn't want me to. On the other hand, it's because never Hashem wants me to to preserve my life. So He wants me to. Do I make a bracha when I eat it or not? What's the halacha? It says like this. Pikuach nefesh, the preservation of life, is a significant exception to the above-mentioned rules. The Torah teaches us that preservation of human life takes precedence over virtually all prohibitions of the Torah, and accordingly, one whose life is endangered may and indeed must eat anything necessary in order to save his life. Eating forbidden foods under such circumstances is therefore not a transgression of Torah law and, and therefore would require a bracha. If, however, the non-kosher food is so completely abhorrent that no pleasure is derived from eating it. So here, right? So let's say they tell you, let's say they tell a person, if the guy, a fellow is uh, from a yid, right? He, in his whole life, he never ate, never let, let non-kosher food pass his lips. And they tell him now that in order to, for whatever reason, there's a special chemical in the, in the mollusks, in the, in the clams, and he's got to have clam chowder, right? He's got to have clam, or he's got to have, I don't know, a face of us. He's got to have, uh, he's got to have, um, Lobster. He's got to eat some lobster, right? Because it, whatever it has, some sort of a chemical that's good for him, and he must eat it. And it, just putting it in his mouth is just so—it's—it's uh, it's, it's literally—it's—it's it's like a, a struggle to keep it down. He wants to throw up, so he's getting no hana at all. He gets no and no physical benefit from that. In that situation, you would not make a bracha. So. If one okay, gives that example, one must eat lobster because of a life-threatening situation, but because of his religious upbringing, he finds it complete, totally repugnant. He just recites no bracha. However, one who is dangerously ill and must eat on Yom Kippur, you should, as a person should, in that situation, he would make a bracha. Interestingly enough, the, there are multiple halachas that come out of that. What about what about if a person is eating, eating on Yom Kippur, he has to eat on Yom Kippur, so now, should he make Kiddush, right? Because normally on Yom Tov, whenever you have a Yom Tov, you have to make Kiddush. You have to make So now he was, for whatever reason, the doctor told him that he can't fast and he must eat and he has to eat a significant amount. He can't eat like a less than a shear. So, so now he has to make, not only does he have to, it's more than one bracha. He has to make Kiddush and he's going to have to bench and he's going to have to, if he forgets them in the benching to say, Yalu, Yalu, he's going to have to repeat the benching. All of those things he would do with the shame of Malchus, even though he's doing something that normally we would say, if you, if you ate, you know, deliberately on Yom Kippur, when you're not supposed to, then you couldn't make a bracha. This person will be making a bracha on those things. Non-kosher foods eaten in error. Um, uh, so that's, uh, that's not as serious a thing as something that somebody, something that somebody does de- deliberately. So someone who inadvertently ate not co- non-kosher food. So of course, if he inadvertently ate non-kosher food, it was inadvertent. Of course, he made a bracha beforehand because he was thinking that it was kosher. He thought that he was eating was kosher food. But now let's say he ate not, he ate something that was not kosher. And let's say it was Irish soda bread. And he didn't realize that Irish soda bread is milchik. So he's so so he's he's eaten something he's really not supposed to have eaten. Or worse, let's say he ate something, let's say he ate something that was really not kosher. I don't know, and it was something um uh uh it had like a it had like wine or cheese or something else in it, right? So now, but now the question is should he bench? So now when he comes to the bracha chrona, so the bracha rishona, of course he made because he thought he didn't realize he was doing something wrong. But now that he realizes, now that he's, somebody made him aware of the fact um, that he was doing something wrong, so can he make, can he bench? So one who inadvertently, inadvertently ate non-kosher food, he has to say the proper bracha chrona, he would have to make a bracha chrona. Whether the prohibition was deraisa or drabanan, or whether the bracha is deraisa or is immaterial, the fact of the matter is 
he's going to have to make the bracha afterwards. Okay. Let's talk now about what happens when a person goes ahead and he eats without making a bracha. What's the issue? Let's talk about it in the theoretical, from theoretical, and then in, and then in the very practical. So Chazal mandated the one must recite a bracha before partaking of any food, and accordingly it is forbidden to partake of even a minute amount of food without, without a prior bracha. Well, that's we understand. Even the smallest amount that I'm eating, I'm supposed to make a bracha. However, this prohibition is limited to eating, drinking, or enjoying an aroma. Right, those are those are the pleasures, the physical pleasures for which I have to make a bracha. If I smell something, if I eat something, if I drink something, the pleasure of sound, sight, or the external application of liquid does not require a bracha. Right, even smoothing a liquid onto your skin, even if it feels good, um, you don't have to make a bracha. The prohibition of eating without a bracha may at times present some very difficult halachic problems. So, let's say somebody put food into his mouth, he realized, and then he realized before he swallowed it that he didn't make a bracha. So you took a, you took a bite of something, and now all of a sudden you realize, Oy vey, I'm, I, I didn't make a bracha. What should I do? Do I have to spit it out? Which would be potentially a bra- an iser of baltashkes. Um, or worse, it could be that it will look disgusting when I, when I spit it out. So not only is that, that's, that's an iser baltashaktsu, of not making yourselves disgusting. Um, or is he allowed to swallow it and make the bracha afterwards? What's the correct What's the correct procedure for somebody who forgot to make a bracha and now he realizes that he has to do so? So one who inadvertently put food in his mouth without a bracha is faced with a perplexing dilemma. Should he remove the food, even though that might now render the food inedible and wasted, which is in itself a prohibition? That's an iser of that we call bal bal. <clears throat> that's a that's an iser of bal tashchis of not wasting things. The Torah doesn't allow us to simply take things and and waste them for no reason. Should he rather swallow the food without a bracha so as not to waste it, even though doing so violates the rabbinic requirement of reciting a bracha? Or perhaps he should recite the bracha with the food in his mouth, which we said earlier, that's not ideal to have anything in your mouth at the time you make food. It's not the proper kavod of making the bracha, but perhaps this is what we call a bedi'avid situation. You're in the situation already. You can't control it. It's not something that I ideally would have wanted to do, but now I'm stuck doing it. So should I should I go ahead and make the bracha? Or should I ahead and make the bracha? Push the food to the side of my mouth and make the bracha. Um, even though generally speaking, we would not allow you to do that. So we'll see that all three are true. Um, the solution to this problem depends on the particular situation. Somebody who puts solid food in his mouth, I took a sucking candy and I put it into my mouth without a bracha. So now I have two options. If the food can be removed without rendering it inedible. So if I didn't start chewing up the chewing up the sucking candy, it's a whole candy. Take a little piece of paper, spit out the candy, make a bracha and put the candy back in your mouth. No big deal. All, all, all's good. What about if it was solid food like bread? I started chewing it up. Spitting it out, that's not going to look very nice. That's really, that's really, that's all that would, that would involve. It may not, it may, A, it may render it inedible. I don't know that it, some, somebody wants to take a chewed up piece of bread and put it back into his mouth. Uh, yeah, that, that, that could be a little gross, right? Or, or worse, it could be baltashak. So it could make other people, you're at a table. Other people are going to have to look at it. You take a piece of meat, right? And you chew up the half chewed up piece of steak and then you start spitting it out. Not so good. So 
if the food can be removed without rendering it inedible, one should do so. That's the, the ideal. Take the food out of your mouth. If that's impossible, the best remaining option is to move the food to the side of your mouth so as to enable him to recite a bracha. And a bracha recited with food in one's mouth, although undesirable, is nevertheless preferable to wasting the food or eating it without a bracha. So you got you 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 you. It's a win-win. It's a it's a it's a not the not the not the best situation, but that's 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 the that's the alternative. Now, what about if you took a swallow of a drink? You took a nice big gulp of uh, beer, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, they didn't make a bracha. Spitting it out, not an option. You spit it out. I mean, I guess you could spit it back into the glass. That would be pretty gross. I'm not sure who wants to drink their glass of beer after that, right? So spitting it out, not really an option. Uh, pushing it to the side of your mouth and talking, I have yet to meet a person that has that kind of talent. But... Uh, but so, so what is he going to do? He's got liquid in his mouth. What's he supposed to do? So one who put liquid in his mouth without a bracha cannot follow the advice given above. It's virtually impossible to recite a bracha properly with liquid in one's mouth unless the amount is minimal. One therefore has no option but to spit out the liquid, ruining the food, um, which, is, which would be um, preferable to drinking without a bracha. But the halacha does give consideration to a person who needs to the drink to quench his thirst that he may swallow the liquid without a bracha. If the situation warrants that he's desperate to get this down, um, it brings to mind a funny story, right? So, so you go to someone's house. You go. I was once in with a friend of mine um, that I used to stay with quite often, and he bought his father loved single malt scotch. Now, single malt scotches back then were quite a rarity. He bought his father for his birthday present a 25-year-old bottle of McAllen's scotch. I'm not getting into whether or not you can drink McAllen's or not drink McAllen's. It's a discussion for another time, right? A 25-year-old bottle of McAllen's scotch. It came in this wooden case with, you know, packed with, with, with the soft packing material around it. The bottle cost, I think, $125, okay? Uh, yeah, liquid gold, right? So so, so here's the, here was the situation, the way it happened then. It's not directly relevant. It's just a funny story about but I want to bring it back to our halachas of brachos. Just as his father opened up the bottle of scotch and poured each of us a little, nice little shot glass, you know, of like this really expensive bottle of scotch, a mesholoch showed up at the door. What's he going to do? The mesholoch came to the door. He invited the, the fellow in, sat him down at the table, poured him a little bit of scotch also, and the fellow took his the 125-year-old, this this 25-year-old McAllen's, and he poured the scotch into Coke. Uh, you could just see the <laughs> you could just see the face of my, my friend's father's face just like change colors as he did that. Okay, so but what's more relevant to us is let's say a person took a swallow of the scotch without realizing he did, he realized he didn't make a bracha. Now spitting that out, I mean there. Uh, that's that's real baltashkis. In other words, here we're talking about like every bo- every glass of that of that bottle uh, has got to be a, you know worth I, I don't know it's got to be a, a good ten fifteen dollars on every on every shot in that in that bottle. So so uh, so spitting it out and not really you know that's so so he brings over here if you needed to quench your thirst or you have a situation where spitting it out is not really such an option. So there there's there'll be a, perhaps more of a cooler to allow one to swallow it in the event. And the third option here, the third idea is here, in the event that the food was swallowed without a bracha, one may no longer recite a bracha rishona on that food. Once you swallowed it, you can't say a bracha anymore. There is, however, an opinion that says that a bracha recited after the food was eaten can be effective retroactively. Although the halachi consensus rejects that opinion, and accordingly, one cannot recite a bracha after the food was eaten. Nevertheless, 
one may recite the, a bracha on other food one wishes to eat. You could say the bracha now on, you know, the second sip of that scotch, whatever it is. Therefore, one should recite the bracha on some other food requiring the same bracha, that the bracha can thus be effective for the food previously eaten as well, you know, it's according to that shita that says that it's okay. Um, ideally, one should do so within approximately three seconds of the original eating, and a delay, however, is preferable to a complete omission of the bracha. Um, uh, so uh, even if you're delayed, you should do it anyway. Now, so that, 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 that takes us through the situations in which, A, one should, should not make a bracha or did not make a bracha. Now we have a situation, what happens in a situation where, this is, this is a situation I believe comes up in Providence on a, on a relatively regular basis, Bar Hashem, and that is, what do I do if I'm serving food to somebody who I know is not going to make a bracha? Right. And not, not only are they not going to make a bracha, I can't even suggest to them that they should make a bracha or even worse, I can't make the bracha for them and they'll just answer amen. And even if they don't answer amen, even if they just hear my bracha, all of those things are solutions. You have numerous solutions. You have numerous, numerous uh, uh, things that you can do here. I can make a bracha. We can wash and make hamotzi. We can, we, we, they can hear my bracha, even if they don't answer amen, but they tell them that I'm making a bracha. So they hear my bracha and they know that that's what I'm doing. What happens if you have a situation where none of those things are appropriate? Am I allowed to give somebody food when I know they're going to eat it without making a bracha? This is not a simple situation. This is actually a very big channel that gets that 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 is dealt with, especially in with people dealing with outreach and cure of rechokim. Right when you you're inviting people to your homes all the time who don't know better and who, who are not interested necessarily, and you're trying to get them interested. Can I feed them? And what are the, what are what are the parameters within which I can feed them and allow them to do something that they're not supposed to be doing? The obligation to recite a bracha applies not only to oneself, but to another Jew as well. And as we mentioned earlier, just like I can make a bracha on your behalf because of what we called, what we call, what we said is arvus, my responsibility for another Jew. If I feed food to another Jew and allow him to eat it without making a bracha, I'm responsible for that too. It's as though I ate the food without a bracha. I am now guilty of, of having created a mechsho, a stumbling block for that person. This is part of what, well, this, the, the prohibition of lifnei iver, the Torah's prohibition of not putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. This person who is not aware that he's supposed to make a bracha, that a bracha is important, that is, that is, a, that is a situation of, of that person is considered halachically, from a halachic perspective, an ever a blind person. They don't know better. So one may not serve food to a non-observant Jew unless he can be persuaded to recite a bracha. Food given to the poor is excluded from that rule. Um, that seems to be meaning if the person needs it, um, so then so then withholding the food from him, it's almost like a pikoach nefesh type of thing. So his need overrides my chiv to make sure that he makes a bracha. Now, on occasion, failure to offer a guest food or drink or insistence that he recite a bracha can be perceived as impoliteness and cause ill will, right? Let's say I have a situation, I have somebody come to my house, they don't want to be quote unquote brainwashed. They don't want you to, they don't want you telling them what to do. They didn't come, they didn't come to your house for religious coercion. They came to your house because they like you and you want to be able to maintain that relationship with them. So now, how do I get them to make a bracha? If I tell them that they have to make a bracha, 
they're going to be offended. If I don't serve them anything, especially if I invited them for a meal, right? I invite somebody for a Shabbos, oh, I'm not serving you. You're not making a bracha, no food for you. Yeah, obviously, that can't be done. That's, that's not. So, so what's the solution? What are we going to do? So on occasion, on failure to offer a, food, a guest food or drink or insistence that they recite a bracha can be perceived as impoliteness. It can cause ill will, or what we would call essentially a chavah Hashem. There will be a desecration of Hashem's name. In that situation, one should offer the guest the food, since the damage done by the ill will is far greater than that caused by the omission of a bracha. And in in that um, uh, in that situation, uh, a person uh, can rely on the psak of uh, Shlomo Zalman and the Chazanish that a person uh, that, that such people are called what we call tinokoshenishbu. They're like children captured amongst the foreign elements of the world. They've been influenced in a way that they don't realize the severity of what they're doing. And they're not, therefore they're not doing the things that they're supposed to do. And by my inviting them to my house, ultimately in the long run, I'm going to get them to make many brachos. So I'm being, I'm being mevater, I'm giving up on this one bracha that they're not making today, that hopefully down the line, in Hashem, they will make many, many more brachos. They'll keep coming back to my house. They'll get used to the fact that they see me making a bracha every time I, every time I eat something. And then they get curious. What is it that you're doing? Why are you doing it? What, what, oh, that's such a beautiful idea. And eventually it becomes something that they, that becomes a habit for them. And then I will have created uh, a positive situation for them. Obviously, this type of thing is uh, is a um, is is as uh, requires judgment, and and you know if you have a person if you have a person that is deliberately does not want to make brachos, let's say somebody who grew up religious and they know better and they know what they're doing is wrong and they're doing it deliberately because they want to show that they don't care. So then invite them better. It's probably better to invite them at a time that you don't have to give them the food or drink, that you don't have to give them something to drink. Have them over to your house for some, for some other occasion and do something else with them. But, uh, but generally speaking, um, one can rely on the fact that ultimately we're trying to move the, the, move, the, move the line forward, move people forward in their growth and in their avodah Hashem and rely on that in order to allow us to uh, continue to invite them and associate with them and bring them closer, hopefully, to Yiddishkeit. Okay, that takes us through the most of what we need as sort of background to the making of brachos. Now, let's begin really the real nitty-gritty of brachos themselves. Not yet up to what bracha do I make on what food, but there's one more, one more, one more, one more area of criteria. If I'm about to make brachos, and I have several brachos in front of me, which bracha do I make first? How do, and how do I decide which bracha it is that is the most important, less important? Which food do I choose to make a bracha on? And which food do I not choose? Oh, oh, um, which, ones on, uh, um, which, which, which ones do I give precedence to others? Those are, that's the, that's the next area that we want to deal with coming up now. So we're starting now on chapter Five, which is the proper sequence of brachos, it begins on page 152. So by way of introduction, we understand that the concept of kavanah bracha is a theme which should be from which we are now very familiar with, right? That a bracha should be recited with appropriate decorum. One's head has to be covered. You have to be holding the item in your hand, preferably in your right hand. Um, there are rules pertaining to the manner in which one recites the bracha. Now we'll discuss the sequence of those brachos. So the facts to be considered in determining the sequence of the importance of a variety of foods requiring the same bracha, so the bracha may be recited over the most important food, 
and the sequence in which two different brachos should be recited. Again, so we have two categories that we have to decide upon. Let's say I have multiple foods of the same bracha in front of me. I have apples, oranges, apples, oranges, grapes, and pomegranates, all Borei Priya eights. Which one do I make a bracha on first? Um, then, then let's say I have in front of me, I have a piece of cake, and I have, and I have a piece of fruit, and I have a vegetable, which which one, all three different brachos, so I have a mazonos, a ha'etz, and a ha'dama, which bracha do I make first in that situation? Or I have a drink in front of me, and I have a, I have a drink, and I have a bowl of ice cream, is does one get precedence over the other? Let's, let's, let's go, let's try to uh, define both the sequence in which brachas are supposed to be made in terms of the brachas themselves, and the sequence in which food food is supposed to be eaten eaten in terms of the food itself. And we're going to see that in terms of the food itself, it also breaks down into multiple categories. A slice of fruit versus a whole fruit, a piece of cake versus a, versus, versus a, a whole roll, etc. So one who wishes to eat two foods, both requiring the same bracha, should recite one bracha for both of them. Of course, you're not going to make separate brachos because reciting a bracha on each would result in a bracha shenetzricha, would be an unnecessary bracha, or perhaps even worse, a bracha levatala that we discussed earlier. So which, which bracha should be recited? Similarly, one eating two food, one eating two foods requiring different brachos has to defi- decide which food to recite the bracha on first. Brachas are way too serious a matter to merely recite haphazardly. Brachas are an expression of praise of the Almighty, and that praise should be arranged in such a manner that it brings out maximum honor to Hashem, who has provided us with the food that we are eating. The thought and effort involved in properly arranging the brachos shows a certain respect and reverence for the bracha itself. Many opinions have been offered by Chazal regarding the proper sequence of brachos. Halachic authorities have also expressed opposing views as to the correct sequence of brachos. And since it's impossible to follow all the contradictory opinions, we have attempted to comply with the consensus of the commonly accepted postkin. So in this safer, Rabbi Forst over here will try to arrange for us what's considered a consensus with regard to these issues, even though there may be other opinions out there. This, this is generally the opinion that we follow. So let's talk about the considerations. In determining the order of precedence in which foods are to be eaten, Chazal are considered the following factors. Number one, the bracha itself. Certain brachos take precedence over others. So for instance, the bracha of hamotzi is the primary bracha that we make. The bracha that we make on bread is a primary bracha. If I have a hamotzi and anything else that needs to be made, I'm always going to make the hamotzi first. Shahakol is the bracha, which is a sort of a catch-all bracha on everything, is the last, is the lowest rated bracha amongst the brachos. And then we have different rankings with the Mazonas and Ha'etz and Adama, etc. The, the, the more specific the bracha is, the more honor that bracha brings. So what I mean, what, what, what does that mean? That means that if I make a Borei Priya, a Shahakol, I'm making a bracha on, on a broad array of things. A Shahakol, Niyabit Varoi, everything is the way is the way Hashem wanted it to be. So that covers everything. But that's not very specific at all. There are certain things that are much more, I could make, make a much more specific bracha. I could make a Borei Priya Eitz. I could make a Borei Minei Mazonas. Right? So those, that's a more specific bracha. When I make a Hadama, I'm making a bracha on all things that grow from the ground. Well, things that grow from the ground includes vegetables, and it includes all sorts of legumes. It also includes all sorts of fruit. But again, it's a non-specific bracha. 
If I make a Baripriya eight on the apple, I'm making a more specific bracha than if I would make a Hadama. So specificity is going to be the first and first uh, um, reason to give a bracha a greater consideration. So in, again, in determining the order of precedence in which foods are eaten, Chazal considered the following factors. Number one, the bracha itself. Certain brachas deserve to precede other brachas. That's, 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 a, that's number one. That's A. B, the food itself. Different foods have different levels, different statures. There's foods that are what we call shivas haminim. There's seven, seven, seven types of fruit that grow in Eretz Yisrael are considered more important than other food. Grains are greater, are greater in terms of their sustenance and their ability to sustain life. So grains get precedence over other foods. Um, wine versus other types of drinks is considered a more hush more important drink, um, etc. So certain foods are deemed more important than others and should therefore be eaten before the other foods so that the bracha may be recited over them. The third, and in some ways the most important, but again, it may be subject to certain to certain limitations, this, this third one, is the preference of the person. What is it that you want to eat right now? Whatever you want to eat right now, that also has, plays a role in deciding which thing I should eat, which thing should be eaten first. Certain foods may be favored by, by, by the person himself and thus deserve to precede other foods which are less desired. The underlying principle of these three considerations is the, the bottom line, what, the reason why we're, why we're stopping on all these things is because is what we call kavod habracha. It's the honor, it's the proper respect shown to the bracha itself. Reciting the most significant bracha on the most important food or the food that one most prefers demonstrates respect and reverence for the bracha. And ultimately that means it just demonstrates that respect and reverence to Hashem himself. It changes the whole way in which I'm, I'm connecting, I'm bonding to Hashem through this particular idea. Okay, so let's start with the bracha itself. Which brachos have greater significance? Although all brachos equally express our gratitude to Hashem and our desire for his continued benevolence, certain brachos also express specific divine providence. There's a certain, as I mentioned before, specificity. I'm exact, saying exactly what it is, that I, that, how I'm connecting. Some brachos are broad in their scope, while others are more specific and are restricted to a particular food or type of food. So, for example, the bracha of shahakol is all-encompassing. It is appropriate for any type of food. However, the bracha of hamotzi lechem min haaretz is only appropriate for bread, right? So, the, therefore, hamotzi ex- expresses divine providence far more specifically than shahakol does. It, it talks about the fact that Hashem provided me with this Bread, not only did Hashem provided it to me, provided me with what I'm eating, but he provided this thing to me, provided me this bread to eat. The bracha of Amotzi is therefore considered a greater praise to Hashem and consequently should precede any other bracha. The sequence in which brachas are recited follow accordingly. The degree of their specificity is as follows. Hamotzi precedes all brachos, including Mazonos, because Hamotzi is defined as the most specific, this is hamotzi lechem in arts. I'm mentioning the fact that Hashem gave me bread. The second second most important bracha is the bracha of mazonos. Hashem has given me sustenance. Hashem has provided sustenance for me. And then the third bracha is the bracha of hagafen, the bracha on grapes, because the drinking of grapes, the drinking of wine, is something that elevates everything that's around it. It's makadish. It makes it separates out, makes things elevates things to a level of holiness. Then the brachas of ha'et or ha'adama, 
And in the opinion of some authorities, ha'etz should always precede adama because it's more specific than the adama is, because adama is valid for both vegetables and fruits, whereas ha'etz is only valid for things that grow on trees. Um, other opinions are of the other authorities are of the opinion that the difference between the first two brachos is too minor to require that our aids be recited first. The proper course of action will be defined below. We'll talk about it afterwards. And then, of course, the fifth bracha that we make is the shahakal. So those that, those are the those are the order in terms of the specificity of brachos. So again, we start with hamotzi, which is very specific about bread. Mizonos, which talks about the fact that the food is what sustains us. Because once we've gotten past the, the sustaining foods, then we have to talk about the most important drink, which carries more weight than any of the fruits or other types of things. Ha'etz and ha'adama, which seems to be a debate as to whether or not it's specifically in that order, or ha'etz and ha'adama are equal to one another. And last, of course, the last of the brachos, we're not going to say least, but the last of the brachos is the bracha of shahako, which is a catch-all kind of bracha that includes everything else. The next category is the food itself. Um, and that brings us into a, a somewhat of a complex topic because we have to start with the Shivas Haminim, which are the which are the uh, the seven species um, that which with which Eretzisol is blessed, um, based on the Pasuk of Eretz Chita Usaura Gefunataina Verimine, Eretz Shemen Udvash. That means that Kadosh Baruch Hu gave us Eretz, a land of chito, saira, wheat, and barley, gefen um, u'te'ena, uh, the, the wine or grapes and figs, Eretz, chito, saira, gefen u'te'ena, verimon, and pomegranates, Eretz, a shaman, a land of olive oil, udvash, dvash doesn't mean dvash in the Torah and in Tanakh, just as an aside, this is an interesting concept, but dvash in the Torah never means honey, does not mean bees' honey. It means the honey uh, from dates. So for the, so the seventh the seventh of the peros, the seventh and the last of the peros is dates. It's actually, one would think that it goes in the order which it's mentioned, starting from the top and moving all the way down. Chita, Saura, Gefen, Teina, Rima, Eretz, and Vash. But in actual fact, the Gemara tells us that the proximity to the word Eretz also has importance to it and has significance to it. So therefore, the things that are closer to the word Eretz are going to be more chashev. And therefore, um, wheat and barley come first because they're the first Eretz. But then they're followed by not, you would have thought, after that comes grapes, um, grapes, uh, figs, and pomegranates. But in actual fact, after that comes olives, dates, grapes, figs, and pomegranates. Okay. We'll come back and talk about the, the Shiva Saminim again, Mitzvah Hashem, next time, because I see we're running out of time. And this, this, the Shiva Saminim has other complexities to it. So let's, uh, le- let's leave off over here. Again, we're talking about the, the Hashivas, the importance of the food itself. That also plays a role in deciding which brachos come first. And we, even though we put the, the order of the brachos themselves in order, which we, which we said was Hamotzi, Mizonos, Hagofen, Ha'etz ha'dama, and then shahakol. Now, now we have to talk about the specificity of food, the, the specific foods, which are mochashev, beginning with shiva saminim. Then we're going to talk about things that are whole versus parts. And then we're going to talk about things that I want, what I desire most 
rather than things that I don't necessarily want and how that plays into which bracha I make first. So we'll come back to be discussing this idea of precedence of brachos based upon all of these different factors. We'll pick it up again next week. Thank you very much, ladies. We'll speak to you next week. Thank you, Rabbi Shochet.